As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It is the most important race we've had, at least uh, in the last 20 years, maybe in my lifetime. A battle of judicial heavyweights. This is going to be an election like no other. That could tip the balance of power in Wisconsin. Everything we care about is going to be determined by who wins this election. This week on Open Record, hot button issues. People are extremely concerned about women's reproductive rights. And heated debate. She's come out and said that she's all about her personal values, not the rule of law. As voters prepare to determine if the Wisconsin Supreme Court will lean right or left. It's the political Super Bowl for 2023. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm here with Fox 6 political reporter Jason Calvi. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Brian. Thanks. We are recording this episode on Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. We were hoping to have Fox 6 investigator Amanda St. Hilaire join us, but uh, daycare is on a delayed start. She's not available right now as she's dealing with that. That's what we're dealing with all the snow, Jason. Before we get to today, we both just came in. Obviously, we yeah. just had a winter storm come through. We both just came in from taking care of snow. This was a heavy, wet snow. It was heavy, and I was out there, you know, shoveling. And I, I think, you know, it was. I think it definitely don't need to do any extra workouts today because it was an hour of, of heavy, heavy snow. I mean, the snow, but then the wa- you know, the lick, you know, all the rain, and it just, the, it just, it was a mess trying to to shovel that this morning. Jason, we are two days after the spring primary that determined the two candidates who will be facing off head-to-head for a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. They are longtime Milwaukee County Circuit Court judge and prosecutor Janet Protasewicz. She is the choice of Wisconsin progressives and former Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly, who is backed by conservatives. This is an all-important seat because of how crucial it is to the balance of political power in Wisconsin. Can you help us understand why this particular Supreme Court seat is so important politically? Because right now we have the Wisconsin Supreme Court is made up of four conservatives and three progressives. And Patience Rogensack is going to be retiring. So there's this open seat that's up in April. The the election is in April. And she's one of the four conservatives. So at this point, if progressives pick up that seat, then they get the four seat majority. They will they would take control of the court. And this is I mean, when you think about it, Wisconsin conservatives have controlled that Wisconsin Supreme Court since, what, 2008. And, and I mean, all of the big decisions that you think about, all of the key crucial debates in Wisconsin often end up at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So think about the biggest debates over the last 15, 15 years. Think about Act 10. Um, think about uh, the, the safer home order during the pandemic, the Evers administration's safer home, stay-at-home order. Um, think about drop boxes. Think about the 2020 election. All of those issues ended up at the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and they decided really the future of those issues in, in Wisconsin. So this court 
really is pivotal for the life of everybody in Wisconsin, wherever you live, whether you're in the city or in the suburbs or in the country, the Wisconsin Supreme Court really is the final arbiter of what the Wisconsin Constitution says and what the laws, how, the, how to interpret the laws in light of the Constitution and, and things like that. So all of these issues that I just brought up have been decided by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and they've had that conservative majority where these issues have tilted, Whether and also legislative maps. I mean, thinking about who represents you in the legislature comes down to map making every 10 years after the census. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court this time around, it, it went back and forth and we even went up to the United States Supreme Court. But at the end of the day, the maps that we have in Wisconsin do favor and everybody would agree that they do favor uh, Republicans and Republicans have a majority, almost a supermajority. They don't have the supermajority in the assembly, or, but uh, but they almost have it. And, um, and, and it's a 50-50 state. So they, these are crucial issues that are going to be debated in the future. We also think about the issue of abortion, whether or not the 1849 abortion ban is still uh, enforceable. That is a question. It's an active lawsuit right now with Attorney General Josh Call trying to stop this from being enforced. Um, this is more than likely, I mean, both sides left and right agree that the Wisconsin Supreme Court is likely going to side the future of that abortion ban here in Wisconsin. I want to step back for a moment, and I had this listed a little later in our sort of discussion points for today, but I want to bring this up higher because I, I think it's it's very telling that, you know, we have already talked about the leaning, the balance of power, the four to three conservative majority that is now in question because Patience Rogensack, one of the conservative justices, is retiring. So there's this three, three split. But we keep talking about balance of power, conservatives versus progressives. This is technically a nonpartisan body, and, and by design, it's supposed to be nonpartisan because the idea is supposed to be that politics are not supposed to influence how judges rule. It's supposed to be the law, but we talk about it so openly as a political race. Republicans don't run against Democrats here. There aren't Green Party candidates. These are officially nonpartisan seats. Why are we talking about them in this way? And, and why has the Supreme Court become such a political or politicized body? Yeah, and, and it really has been this way where you've had the progressive candidate versus the conservative candidate uh, really since, you know, the middle 2000s, uh, 2007 and, and, and on. We've had these very clear choices between conservative and, and, and liberal. And, you know, when it comes down to it, the outside groups are investing in these races because they see how important the Supreme Court is in our daily lives, how important it is in determining what is and is not constitutional under the Wisconsin Constitution. And so there really is two different, and we see this nationally too, where there are different approaches to legal interpretation. And we see that at the United States Supreme Court, where you have, you know, originalists, textualists, um, versus more of a spirit of, of the founding uh, approach to interpreting the Constitution. And, and so we see that playing out also in, in local Supreme Court races as well. And, and, and we're seeing that play out here, how crucial it is. There are definitely progressive uh, legal scholars and there are conservative legal scholars. We see that everywhere, uh, every state. And we're seeing that in Wisconsin, too, where there are different ways to interpret the law. There are different approaches to being, you know, to jurisprudence and, and all of these elements of the law. And so that plays out in our races, even though, yes, they're, they're, you're not going to see a D or an R next to the names of the two candidates on your ballot in April. It is very true that Democrats, right after this primary, they endorsed uh, they, they endorsed the progressive candidate Prosewitz. 
uh, Republicans, conservatives are going to be backing Dan Kelly as well. So we're going to see that play out at the state level just because these races are so crucial. And and as we heard in, in the open here from uh, from Bill McCoshin, a longtime political analyst and political strategist, he said this is the most important election in 20 years, if not in his entire lifetime. And I know we often say that. I mean, when you're on the campaign trail, candidates often will say, oh, this is the most important election. And, and it's kind of like it's kind of like a cliche on the campaign trail. But in this particular case, because the balance of power could tilt progressive and, and the future could really change in Wisconsin, if that if that goes, if the progressives win control of the Supreme Court, all of those issues that were decided over the last 15 years could be revisited. We could have revisiting of Act 10 and we could have revisiting of the legislative maps and definitely abortion and issues moving forward as well. Before we get into what happened with this primary election and the, and the two candidates who face each other going forward, I think about how these groups that spend so much money and we know that these elections are getting more and more expensive when they spend that kind of money. If you're a progressive group, if you're, for instance, a, 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 a you know, a, a pro-choice and a, a pro-abortion rights group who's backing uh, Janet Prosewitz, when she gets in, if she wins, you're counting on her ruling in the way that favors what you want. Same thing from conservatives who support Dan Kelly. They're counting on Dan Kelly interpreting the law in a way that is favorable to what they want. When you have someone who is backed by one of these sides who gets into that seat and then rules in ways that may seem to some unpredictable, like a Brian Hagedorn. Justice Brian Hagedorn has been obviously a, a real thorn in the side of many conservatives who supported him thinking he was sort of a predicted uh, player, that he would rule in certain ways. He has ruled in ca some cases in ways that conservatives were not happy with. Um, and, and and so they look at him as, in some cases, people are apologizing for having supported him um, in, in the first place. It, does What does that say, I guess, about the idea that they're supposed to get into this position and interpret what the law says, but these groups that spend all this money want them to find a way to just make the law work for the ultimate outcome that they intend? Well, I think it does come down to looking at this from the perspective of progressive versus conservative jurisprudence and, and all of those things that we just mentioned. And, and the fact that uh, when, it, when it comes down to it, uh, it, there are very clear distinctions between the two camps. So you can read the Supreme Court uh, when they do put out an opinion here in Wisconsin, and you can read, uh, you know, the when it's a very controversial case, like maybe the governor's stay-at-home order or the drop boxes or things like that, when you read through the opinion, you know you you clearly see, you know, the progressive wing of the court laying out the argument, you know, in support of maybe drop boxes or in support of the the safer home order, and then you see the conservative justices saying that it violates Wisconsin statute, um, and so it's it's very clear that. In many of these cases, there is that clear distinction between the progressives and, and the conservatives. So while they can't guarantee where their candidates, whether Dan Kelly or Perse, uh, Janet Perusewicz, are going to rule on a particular case, they have an inclination that they're going to be able to or, or going to side with with the, either the progressives or the conservatives, respectively, depending on you know which candidate we're talking about there. So there's no guarantee that they're going to rule that way. But uh, but that is sort of the sense that uh, that these people are going to look at the law in a particular way based on whether they're coming at it from a conservative or progressive perspective. And, and we've seen that play out in who we've elected. So Karofsky was the last Justice Karofsky was the last person who won a Supreme Court race back in 2020. And she's been a reliable uh, vote for the progressives on these 
on these controversial issues I've just laid out for you, whether it's legislative maps or the drop boxes or mask mandates or the things like that. Well, and, and so if we talk about this spring primary election, there were four candidates for this one Supreme Court seat, two that would be considered progressive candidates, two considered conservative. Um, when you look at the numbers, Janet Protosiewicz had a dominant day, 46 percent of the vote. Daniel Kelly, the top uh, vote getter for the conservatives, 24 percent of the vote. But right behind him, of course, was Judge Jennifer Doro. And, and she a lot of people will recognize her name. If you're listening to this podcast, you know, Judge Doro was the judge who presided over the Daryl Brooks trial. And after that very high profile trial and her performance dealing with his antics and his outbursts, um, there were many people who said, we want to see her run. She needs to run for the Supreme Court. What happened to Jennifer Dora. How did Daniel Kelly pull this out? It seems like she had a lot of momentum because of the Brooks trial. Um, what are you hearing in terms of how Daniel Kelly was able to top her and become one of the two who will go on to the general? So just to step back, I just want to remind people that, and obviously if you voted on Tuesday, you saw all four of those candidates are on the same ballot. So whether you're a conservative or progressive, you're on the same ballot. The top two vote getters move on. It was possible at the end of the day that two conservatives went on or two progressives. But in this case, uh, and, and what usually happens is there's one conservative and one progressive that move on just based on the share of, of votes in Wisconsin. Yeah. In a 50-50 state, it seems less likely that you would a roughly 50-50 state that you would have two from one side that could be the top two vote getters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely a possibility. I mean, we, as we were looking at this race in January. We had no clue what was going to happen. But I think a lot of people in our area thought Jennifer Duro was going to be able to uh, to get, get through the primary and move on. She had the name recognition. I think a lot of people were very impressed with how she handled herself during that trial of Daryl Brooks and and just the emotional impact that that whole case had for all of us in, in the Waukesha area in, in southeastern Wisconsin, that terrible tragedy and just watching uh, that court case play out in court where Dale Brooks was was convicted uh, in the in the in the killing of, of the people during the parade. Um, so looking at all of that, you know, when you look at how she did in southeastern Wisconsin, she really dominated versus versus Daniel Kelly. When you're looking at at uh, how she did versus Daniel Kelly, she won most of the counties around Milwaukee for the if you're just versus Dan Kelly, not not including uh, Janet Perusiewicz, but just versus Daniel Kelly. She beat Daniel Kelly in most of the area, most of the counties around Milwaukee. She did not win Kenosha. Daniel Kelly beat her there. But uh, so she did have that play. She did do very well in the Milwaukee media market. But then when it came to the rest of the state, she really did. She didn't do very well. And uh, Daniel Kelly did did much better amongst conservatives out of this Milwaukee media market. And I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. I think one is you had mentioned Brian Hagedorn. Um, you know, some conservatives or many conservatives have been disappointed with Brian Hagedorn in the way he's ruled, because in some controversial cases, he has sided with progressive justices. And so some conservatives have thought, well, that was that they, they kind of regret voting for him in, in some ways. Um, and so in this instance, I think there was a hesitancy amongst conservatives to to vote for Doro because maybe they were worried that she could be Justice Hagedorn 2.0, meaning, you know, she is saying she's a conservative and, and she might very well uh, vote conservative on most issues. But they were worried, is she going to be like Brand Hagedorn in some cases and, and side with the progressives? They weren't sure. She she they, they said she was unknown on, on those particular issues. Now, she had been endorsed by many conservatives and conservative groups and Wisconsin Right to Life backed her and others as well. Um, but at the end of the day with Daniel Kelly, the conservatives said, hey, he has already been on the Supreme Court. 
they know how he rules. He ruled against the safe safe. Uh, he ruled against the stay at home order. He ruled against various other issues that made it to the Supreme Court. They they feel like okay with him they're 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 a safe bet. They they know he's going to be a reliable conservative vote. And maybe at the end of the day they weren't sure what they were going to get with Duro if she was going to be more of like a Brian Hagedorn where swings from time to time to the to the left. So of course that leaves Protozewitz and Kelly going head to head in the general election. And while the the if you just look at the numbers that those two candidates uh, got in terms of percentage of votes in the spring primary, it looks like a runaway victory for Janet Protasewicz. She got 46 percent to Daniel Kelly's 24 percent. Of course, when you combine the votes of Kelly and Doro, they had a total of 46 percent themselves. But there's a fourth candidate there, and there was Everett Mitchell, who got 7 percent of the vote. He's a progressive candidate. So when you put all of that together in a f- overall 50-50 state, which has been razor thin in gubernatorial elections and presidential elections, this one had a pretty su- substantial lean toward the progressive candidates. What does that say about, uh, you know, and, and what what are the sort of, you know, I guess, pundits, the experts saying about the general election and what that means for, for the race ahead? Well, we talked with Bill McCashin. We heard from him in, in the introduction, and, and he said this is really a red flag for for conservatives. The fact that, you know, just looking at Janet Prosewitz's vote total, she got more votes than the two conservatives combined. And then when you add the two progressive candidates together, they got 53% of Wisconsin in the primary and the conservatives only got 46%. So these are red flags for conservatives. They have to be worried. But at the end of the day, when you talk to the candidates and when you talk to people, they say, well, a primary is much different from a general election. General elections have more turnout. The people that are voting in a in a, in a primary are, are more... Um, gung-ho voters, I guess you could say. Uh, turnout is is usually pretty low in these primary elections. You know, I think we topped 16% in previous elections before 2023. Um, so, you know, we're looking at, you know, 12 to 16% of the voting age population voting in these primaries, the Supreme Court primaries in previous years. Um, so it's not a very large voter turnout for these primaries. Uh, people that are very interested in politics are turning out. But uh, this time around, we saw, what, about 20% voter turnout? Um, we saw the most amount of people voting in a Supreme Court primary, close to a million, about 950,000 people voted on Tuesday. That's almost a million people voting in a spring primary. That's yeah. pretty substantial. Yeah, and it's it's uh, the last time. So in 2020, in the February spring primary for the Supreme Court, we had, what, 700,000 people vote. So this race is is definitely getting a lot more attention than previous Supreme Court races. Part of that is all the advertising. We're hitting record levels of advertising in a primary. We had Ad Impact, which keeps track of political advertising. They found $9 million spent in the primary for the Supreme Court race. Now, that is almost to the state record for an entire election cycle, primary and general election. The record uh, set for the Wisconsin Supreme Court general and primary was $10 million. So we're already at $9 million. We're going to definitely shatter that record over the next six weeks. We've got 40 days until the election uh, and we're going to see all that advertising. But again, this was record levels of primary spending. I think that really drew attention to what's going on. We have all these national debates going on about abortion. Obviously, Wisconsin is one of those states that has an abortion ban on the books. And it's more than likely that that particular issue is going to end up at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So I think on both sides, we're seeing national groups on on abortion, those who support abortion rights, those who are opposed to abortion, 
of both investing in this Supreme Court race because they see how crucial it's going to be for the future of abortion in Wisconsin. So you have groups like the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, their uh, PAC, their affiliated uh, Political Action Committee is is investing in Dan Kelly. You see Planned Parenthood as well as Emily's List. Emily's List is a national organization that tries to promote what they call, uh, they they say they try to promote pro-choice women. And so you're seeing both of these national groups and others coming into Wisconsin to invest. So you're going to be hammered with mailings, people knocking at your door, as well as ads on both radio and television for the next 40 days. So buckle up. Well, that's what I was going to, to to bring this to is when you look at the spending, obviously, there's a general overall inflation in what elections cost. And we're seeing spending in all elections go up. But this one in particular, it, it seems like the money is coming in uh, in, in these record amounts, it, at least in some part and possibly in large part because of that single issue. How big of an issue in this race is the state of legal abortion in Wisconsin. Obviously, there's the ban right now that's in place because of the the U.S. Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs decision. That takes us back to that, that, you know, 1849 law here in Wisconsin. That issue is sitting there. How important is that to this race and and to the money that is coming into it? Yeah, I mean, definitely crucial to the money because we're going to see um, you know, these big groups that I just mentioned have already invested money into the or, or are already pledged. Like, for example, the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America group, they'd already said they were investing six figures in Dan Kelly's primary race. Um, Planned Parenthood investing uh, money in, in going forward with with Perusiewicz on the progressive side. So really, the money is just going to keep flooding the area. It's going to be flooding your votes. It's going to be flooding the suburban voters trying, the swing voters in the state trying to really get them to to vote on this particular issue. And we saw it play out as well uh, on the campaign trail because we had, you know, Justice Persewitz in the primary talk bringing up the issue of abortion. And, um, you know, one of the things she said during her election watch party or her primary victory party, I should say, was that, uh, you know, she said her opponent definitely would would probably rule in favor of the 1849 abortion ban. She said herself that she, I want to pull up the quote here because I have it right in front of me. This is her quote. I value a woman's freedom to make her own reproductive health care decisions. And um, so that's what she's saying. Now she said, I can't tell you how I'm going to rule in the case. But when you talk to Dan Kelly, he says that she's pretty much signaling exactly how she's going to vote and that that is a violation of judicial ethics. And that is a violation of, of uh of the role of a judge to really put their thumb on the scales and, and prejudge a particular case. So he's really hammering her for making her stances on abortion and on the legislative maps. She said the legislative maps are rigged. So, you know, he's really hammering her for, you know, speaking very openly during the primary about and also now in the general speaking about those issues. It, it just is that unusual to have a Supreme Court? I mean, I think we both at the at the national level and at local level, we see Supreme Court uh, judicial candidates often sort of indirectly signal maybe where they might lean in certain ways, but they often seem very careful to say, I cannot, you know, I don't want to prejudge how I would rule on a case that comes before me or an issue that comes before me. And so if you, if you watch, you know, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, uh, confirmation hearings at, at, at the federal level, you'll you'll hear the, you know, the, the people asking the questions, um, you know, the, the committee will really go after the candidate trying to pin them down on where they stand on issues. And they're usually very defensive about that, that I can't prejudge how I'm going to rule until I see the case before me. Here you had a candidate who was pretty open about where she stands on issues that are likely to come before 
this Supreme Court. Is that unusual uh, in, in these races? Well, and I think that's that's what Dan Kelly is saying, that this this is something that we've never seen before. Um, to have them clearly laying out on particular issues now. But, you know, just what Janet Protasiewicz is saying is, you know, yeah, she she is speaking about uh, about abortion and she's speaking about the maps. But she says at the end of the day, I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to rule in any case. But she's telling you what her values are. So I think you can read between the lines, especially because she says, I guarantee you that Dan Kelly is or, or the opponent, because this is uh, during the primary where we didn't know if it was going to be Kelly or, or Doro, um, she says, I guarantee you that my opponent's going to be um, upholding the 1849 abortion ban. So uh, she's definitely signaling that this is a key issue and she's kind of, you know, necessarily not, she's not necessarily saying I'm going to rule this way, but she's kind of wink, wink. I, I value, I value abortion rights, she says, and, uh, and my, my opponent would, would uphold the ban. Well, the numbers would so far show that whatever her strategy has been worked in the primary, the question is what will happen in the general. The stage is set for that. What can we expect? What's, what's to come here? Well, you're going to be definitely expecting, if, if you thought that there was a lot of ads the last a few weeks in the primary, you're going to just be bombarded by them. It's going to only be intens- intensified. We talked about all those national groups now coming into the state to invest. You're going to have them uh, knocking at your door. You're going to have m- more mailers than you ever saw. Uh, for probably for a Supreme Court race, you're going to see more television ads, internet ads. You're going to be on Facebook. You're you're going to see people posting about this because the stakes are so clearly so high. I mean, when you talk about the balance of power, when you talk about the seven justices, it's a 10-year term on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, this this is this is going to decide the future of so many different issues in Wisconsin. And that is for everyone to decide when they go to the polls in April, which is just 40 days away from today. And that's a good time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual and have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. Open Records executive producer Sarah Smith is unavailable to ask the question today, but she did send me a quasi-secret ballot, uh, Jason, with the question that you and I are going to discuss. I say quasi because she sent it to me by email with a slug that says, do not open off the record question in in all caps. But my email, as I was just telling you off the air, is set up in a way that I've got that little one-line preview. And of course, the question's right there in the one-line preview. But I promise you, I didn't look at it. I saw it was there and I looked away. So I've not read this before. I'm going to open it up now. And uh, here is the open the off the record question of the day what's something that is not worth the price but everyone hypes up something that is not worth the price but everyone hypes up see you would think if i had read this in advance i'd have a great answer ready to go and i don't the first thing jason that comes to my mind but i feel like we've talked about it before here is um i think like starbucks drinks mm-hmm. are so expensive you know, five, six bucks for an average thing where they're just throwing a lot of whipped cream and some other uh, shots of flavor in. I think now my wife would disagree because to her, Frappuccinos are the crack cocaine of the uh, of the, you know, the coffee and, and uh, especially drinks world. So um, she <laughs> loves her Frappuccinos. I to me, I just want a plain black coffee with nothing else in it. And it seems to me that that's overhyped and overpriced. But um, I, I've got to think of something maybe more substantial than that. That's the one that comes to mind for me. You know, I one of the things that comes to mind right away for me is this Twitter blue. And I, I don't want to call out a particular company, uh, but but I just feel I, I don't understand why 
and again, if, if you're one of those people that signed up for Twitter Blue and you're paying, what is it, nine? Is it nine dollars a month? So is 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 this just the, having the blue check mark? Well, I think it's you get no, you get the blue check mark. You get to edit your tweets. You get to uh, you get you get to tweet out like paragraphs. I think. I mean, I think it gives you a little bit more flexibility with what you tweet. You can edit. You can do things like that, which you can't do with a normal Twitter account. And you get a blue and you get a blue check mark. I'm not any kind of a Twitter power user. I tweet every so often, and most of the time when I tweet, honestly, if you look at my Twitter. It's mostly when there's a big sporting event and I just want to sort of like watch the game with millions of others. And so I comment on the Super Bowl or whatever it might be or a big Brewers Cardinals series or something. Um, so I, I don't do a lot of, of, of tweeting otherwise. But years ago, this television station said, hey, we want you to have more of a social media presence. We want to get you verified. So they you had to go through a process to get the blue check mark. Yep, it's really you. You are the Brian Polson of, of Fox 6 open record and investigators fame. OK, great. I still have a blue check mark. I have done nothing. I don't pay eight or nine dollars a month. And I get people all the time who say, oh, is it worth that eight bucks a month for you to have that? But I don't know if the station is paying for no, this. No, no, we're behalf. not. We're not. We're what they call legacy accounts. So we were okay, we, we, so. we were verified. We got our blue check marks because we were we were journalists and that they wanted to back in the day. They, they provided that blue check mark. But now I'm, I'm seeing if you click on the blue check mark, it will tell you whether it's a legacy account or Twitter blue. And I'm seeing people that you know, my friends and whatnot that are, that are blue check marks and they're paying for it. It's their Twitter blue subscribers. And I'm just, I don't understand what the value is in paying for something that's free, but I don't think there's a lot of hype. I don't think people are, I mean, these people are, I don't think talking about the fact they're paying eight dollars or whatever it is a month for Twitter, but I'm not paying. One person hyped it pretty big. That was Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but now we see, but now we see, uh, Facebook is going to be moving forward with this, uh, with their pay to, pay to get verified thing. And I, I just, I, at the end of the day, I want to like kind of limit m m some of the social media time. And I just don't see myself paying for it at this point. Um, but uh, maybe somebody can convince me. So send me an email or tweet me a message about why you want to support the Twitter blue and, and Facebook verification pay to play. Let me ask one other thing that might be, and I don't know if this is overhyped or not. I, I'm, I'm really trying. I, I really wish Sarah was here because I'm, you know, when she asks these, she has something in mind. I'd really be curious to know what hers is. And and I'm wondering if it's like, are we thinking big ticket? Like, are we talking like overhyped electric cars? Yeah. Or are we talking like overhyped, you know, um, chocolate covered Twinkies, which I don't think anybody <laughs> has anymore. But um, but but I do wonder if uh, when it comes to streaming services and I don't know if this is a hype thing, but there are so many now. And every time you hear another one, it's like, well, the, the new thing, everybody's got to have Paramount Plus. Right. And and. And there's also, uh, you know, there's the the Peacock and you got your Apple TV Plus and and there's Netflix and HBO Max. And at a certain point, we've gotten back to the point where we're just paying huge amounts for cable. Right. 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 And is that really what this is? <laughs> exactly. But, but I wonder which of the streaming services are like, you, the, you know, Netflix seems to be the one you got to have Netflix. But beyond that, what's just hype? Is Disney Plus overhyped? Probably not if you have smaller kids. I don't know either. I mean, I can tell you that we... Okay, this is going to be embarrassing, but uh, <laughs> that's why it's going in the podcast. Um, I have spent my entire life not seeing all of the Star Wars, so I knew I knew that I knew the. Uh, you know, we're talking about the, ori the original three, so we're talking about episodes four, five, six, right? And and I I know. I've seen because of popular culture or whatever, I've seen highlights from all of those. So I know, you know, Luke, I am your father. I, I know all of, you know, the, the big scenes from various movies, but I never actually sat down and watched all of them together. So we, 
on New Year's Eve, we we went to the library. We checked we checked them out ahead of time, but we, we were going to watch them on New Year's Eve. And uh, then we got the CDs, or the DVDs. We put them in, in the computer and started watching them. And, you know, we got an hour and a half in and then it was all scratched. We couldn't finish. We couldn't finish it. So we're like, oh, man, we promised the kids we we're going to finally watch these movies. And so then we had no choice but to sign up for a month of Disney Plus. And because Disney Plus provides you with all the Star Wars uh, movies. So we were able to watch four five and six over Disney Plus. We did it for a month. We watched the movies and then we and then we canceled the subscription. So I don't I don't want to speak about the value of it. I, I don't. But at least for that one month, it was definitely nice to be able to watch all all of those movies. I, well, but what's funny is it seems like what you went toward is that Star Wars might be overhyped, and no, and, and you know, no. there's so much merch. Okay, I didn't no, know if that's no, where you were going. No, no, then Star you Wars. No, letters, uh, right? no, I mean, definitely Star Wars was definitely very enjoyable to watch all all of those original movies and then the, the latest ones as well. So I'm not saying that's overhyped. I'm just saying I did it for a month, and I definitely don't want to continue paying ten dollars a month uh, for the streaming service. So people can make up their own minds, but I'm I'm definitely not subscribing to a streaming service right now. I, I will. I will point out one thing which is i thought this would be funnier if you had actually said star wars is overhyped but you, you i know there are star wars fanatics yes that if they're listening to this that are still they're, they're they're yelling at their their uh you know whatever earbuds or whatever it is listen to this podcast because you said and and you're gonna go you're gonna roll your eyes like really but i'm telling you you said the quote was luke i am your father and they will jump all over that and say no the quote is no I am your father. And I only know that because I said that once in a story and I was railed and, and raked over the coals for getting the quote wrong. So um, isn't it amazing? Uh, in, in that sense, Star Wars might be a little bit overhyped. How, how did so? So how did it become popular that it was Luke? I am your father because you and I both said it, but it's not. And you're right. I did notice that when I watched it that, I, whoa, I got that quote wrong my entire life. Like, how did that happen? Is there something that explains I, that? I think I think people for years because of the context of what was happening, misquoted it in popular culture. And then, of course, the fanatics went, rewatch it. You got it wrong. That's not what it was. Um, but I think there's probably a lot of things. I think there's a lot of movie quotes that people actually do get wrong. Yeah. Even some of the things, maybe like Godfather or other things that sure. people will get wrong because there's sort of a popular, um, maybe it's a truncation of what was said or whatever it was. But that's a whole other off-the-record question, right? Yeah. Uh, commonly misquoted movie quotes. I'm going to have uh, Sarah put that one in for next that's, time. That's great. I, I know that these election times are always super busy for you. You're asked to do things both night and day and early morning. So I really appreciate you taking the time to to come on uh, the podcast. Um, hopefully we'll be talking again soon after the general election about what this means for the state of Wisconsin. But big election head. Thanks again for being on Open Record. Thanks for having me, Brian. And if anybody wants to tweet me about their Star Wars quotes, Disney <laughs> Plus or their subscription to Twitter, please go ahead. I'd love to hear from you guys. Thank you. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record, a question for Off the Record, or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, please send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, our executive producer, Sarah Smith, our editor, Dave Machuda. Please subscribe to Open Record. If you haven't done that already, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you do your podcast listening. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.